there is going to be an enormous amount of work before you have access to that capital. I'm Tamina, and I'm extending a heartfelt invitation to you as we join forces in reclaiming economic power for women in a world that is often structured against us. We'll dive into the minds of accomplished female leaders, investors, and entrepreneurs to equip you with the confidence and knowledge to build wealth for yourself and other women. So buckle up, get ready to learn, and be inspired to take action. Today's guest is a dream come true. I've been following her work for many years now and still cannot believe she's actually on the show. Elizabeth Galbett is a venture capitalist, designer, and professor. She's a managing partner and co-founder of SoGal Ventures, the first woman-led next-generation venture capital firm investing in the three biggest arbitrage opportunities of our time. Undervalued founders, undercapitalized geographies, and underserved problems. Elizabeth has led over 100 fund investments to date, in which she actively seeks to back exceptional startups, revolutionizing how the next generations live, work, and stay healthy. Elizabeth's favorite investment area is the intersection of smart design and machine learning slash AI fueling major health tech innovation. As often the earliest investor in groundbreaking digital health technologies, Elizabeth's portfolio has grown into over 10 billion of market value, anchored on how technology can improve access to quality care with affordability and equity. Standouts in Elizabeth's portfolio include lab platform Everly Health, who made one of the first at-home coronavirus tests, digital pathology pioneer Prosha, mental health innovator Real, holistic medical practice Parsley Health, pediatric and autism care provider Elemi, AI-powered drug discovery in Silico Medicine, Smart Sock Siren Care, and comprehensive African IT leader Helium Health. She's also a founding member of the Multicultural Leadership Coalition, a union of top multicultural funds empowering diverse leaders to claim their economic power in boardrooms. Elizabeth is an honoree in the 2018 Forbes 30 Under 30 in Venture Capital list with a focus on design and health tech. Sogal has a clear brand and track record, next-generation insights, and global community advantage that set them apart from others in the VC industry. Elizabeth fuels the future of underrepresented founders through her work at Sogal and the firm's ever-growing funds. She is one of the youngest self-made general partners with seven years of first-to-market experience behind both her and her co-founder, Pocket Sun. Sogal, Sogal has consistently invested in and created high-growth women entrepreneurs like no one else. Sogal has consistently invested in and created high-growth women entrepreneurs like no one else. Behind the fund, they have a global platform and nonprofit, Sogal Foundation, that operates one of the largest communities for women entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. The Sogal Foundation has provided over 80 black founder startup grants of 5 to 10K for early-stage pre-seed Black, female, and non-binary founders to launch and scale their companies, as well as train over 150 women angel investors to write their first checks through their Fempire curriculum. Sogal Ventures is Elizabeth's second VC firm. She co-founded A-Level Capital in 2015 at only 25 years old, 
while in graduate school at Johns Hopkins. The start of Elizabeth's VC career was personal. During grad school, her father was diagnosed with cancer, while at the same time she was advising digital pathology startup Prosha. The startup was facing difficulty raising their initial seed run, and she knew firsthand how necessary the new technology was for improving the diagnostic process for cancer. She made it her mission to be the first outside investor into the company, so other families wouldn't have to endure the pain that hers did. A-Level Capital wrote the first check, and by the time the CEO graduated a few months later, he closed an oversubscribed pre-seed round to bring this technology to the market. The company recently closed a 37 million Series C round and now employs hundreds of individuals and works with top cancer institutes and healthcare systems around the globe. Additionally, through Elizabeth's leadership and mentorship, A-Level Capital has enabled over 100 Johns Hopkins students to experience venture capital investing firsthand, with dozens of alumni going on to work at top VC firms, as well as start venture-backed startups of their own, such as Climate Tech VC, playing a crucial role in helping the next generation of diverse venture capitalists and entrepreneurs get their start. Elizabeth, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking the time to join me on the show today. And second, I just wanted to say that I've been following your work for many years now. I've been such a big fan of, of yours and Pocket. So um, when I did my vision mapping and goal setting over winter break, one of my goals was to actually meet you this year. And, and here we are. So um, this just really, really means a lot for, for me and my community. So thank you. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, well, look, Elizabeth, this podcast is all about helping women build wealth for themselves and other women. And I always like to say that a wealthy woman can walk out of almost every room she feels uncomfortable in and create opportunities for other women along the way because financial independence equates freedom, right? And I like to start out with the same question for all of my guests. Um, so here it comes. What does women supporting women mean to you and how does that show up in your life? Yes, I love the way you phrased it. And I think it has a lot to do with actually how SoGal began. Mm -hmm. My business partner, Pocket Sun, when she was at USC doing her master's, oftentimes in the classroom, her professors were bringing in mostly white male guests. And as an Asian, as an immigrant, as a woman, she really didn't feel like she was represented in these rooms and they were a bit comfortable. And so she actually took it upon herself to start building community. And SoGal started as a student community just at USC to support other women. And it quickly grew from small 30 to 40 person events to 600 person events to now our global community, as well as our venture fund. And I think to me, it's always been about, you know, even if, you know, official channels are not supporting women in the way they should or industry is not supporting women in the way they should, um, there's ways that we can still support each other. And it can be very simple ways. It could be right liking somebody's Facebook or LinkedIn post of somebody you care about who's trying to build a business or get a client or you know, do something that progresses their career forward. It could be as simple as, you know, making sure you purchase things from your friends who run businesses. 
to then all the way kind of what we do at SoGal, whether it's venture investing or angel investing in women, right? That is putting your wealth directly to work in supporting the businesses of women. But I think there's actions we can each do every single day that support ourselves, that support other women, that support our community. And just being thoughtful about that, I think, is step number one. I love that so much because to your point, it is super easy these days with all the technology that we have at our hands to support the women in our networks, our friends, to your point, who are building new ventures and companies, leveraging your own network, your own personal brands to create visibility for them and, and their work. Um, I love that you brought up the the social media example of liking someone's Facebook, Instagram or or LinkedIn post. I think that those are like small things and people, I believe people should be more mindful about, you know, turning that into a habit and be like, hey, someone is working on something really, really cool. Why not support them? You don't have to go out, out of your way, you know, and invest tens of thousands of dollars, but just introducing them to maybe a potential angel investor, you know, who can help them um, get the show on the road or introduce them to someone who might become a co-founder or, you know, a future business partner. And there's so many opportunities these days. Um, and I love that you pointed that out. And you also already alluded to how Sogal started eventually um, or started when, when, when Pocket noticed that there is a, there is a big, big gap that needs to be filled in the venture and entrepreneurial ecosystem in general. So you met back in 2015, I believe, right, when you both took an executive education course on venture capital at Stanford. And then the two of you bonded over this shared passion for creating um, systemic change in the VC industry and channeled that passion into building a global community that now spans 50 cities across six continents, which is absolutely incredible. And to your point, you focus really on supporting those female and minority entrepreneurs because um, back in the day, you know, there weren't that many opportunities for female and minority founders. There still aren't enough, uh, let's be real, um, but, but we're getting there and you were the first, first fund to, to enter that space. Elizabeth, I'm curious to learn, how do you see the landscape of entrepreneurship changing overall over the next decade or so? And what role do you see Sogal playing in this evolution? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, one of the most exciting times to be an entrepreneur, um, especially as a woman entrepreneur. There's definitely, as you were saying, new opportunities emerging. There's new funds led by women. Um, unfortunately, the statistics have kind of stayed the same over the past 40 years. It's hard to really chip away when women-led companies are only getting about 2% or less of venture capital financing. So there probably needs to be you know, thousands of funds right. that exist, like SoGal Ventures, to get anywhere close to equality and we need to be able to raise bigger funds and deploy bigger checks. And only then will there be any sort of, you know, equity kind of in the system. But I think on the entrepreneurial side, it's so exciting because before women were being asked, like, in order to build these big businesses, 
you're not going to have great access to capital and like you're going to have to be super, super lean in everything you do because of that to try and build a business. And I think with all the new AI tools that are sort of coming out that basically help you run businesses easier, cheaper, leaner, I'm not saying the playing field is equal, but there is the ability to have more equal footing at the starting points of building a business where you're not, you know, staying up 24-7 doing all the work yourself. If you can leverage some of these tools you can have a business that is much more powerful from the early days because the tools are kind of doing the work that perhaps your first one, two, three, four employees could have been doing. Um, so you can get a little bit further without much capital um, if you utilize some of these technologies. And I think that's really exciting because before all this, it was like you had to be the one doing all this work of employee one, two, three, and four to get the capital, if you're able to get the capital to build your business. And now it's kind of like if you can be smart and utilize some of these technologies, like you can do it in a more scalable way. So I think that hopefully will be a little bit more of an equalizer to women. And I think that's really exciting. I think more and more women, right, are creating businesses, and that's incredibly exciting because I think after the pandemic, whether we're talking about sort of the great resignation or just, you know, the general culture of like, wow, we want something that's more flexible, that works for us, that, you know, gives us the opportunities and we don't want to sort of engage in sort of the office political nightmare of trying to raise, <laughs> rise the ranks in a traditional corporate environment. I think there's more and more women who are having side hustles turn into their main hustle. I think there's more and more women that are sort of saying like, hey, what if I go out on my own? Like our law firm that we use all places is a terrific example of this. Um, she was a law firm partner at you know a huge law firm in New York City. She went out on her own and is completely focused on only supporting women fund mm -hmm. managers and women entrepreneurs. And her business is absolutely booming because all of us women fund managers and women entrepreneurs were looking for somebody to support us, right, in a way that was deliberate and, you know, very suited to our needs as fund managers and entrepreneurs. So there's more and more opportunities, even if you're not necessarily you know, a tech entrepreneur to also be in the service provider category and be supporting the ecosystem and be an entrepreneur yourself in doing that. I love that because, you know, these days going back to your, um, to the first point you made about leveraging the power of technology and creating efficiencies through AI these days, you know, you, you cannot escape yourself from when you scroll on LinkedIn, you know, every other post is about, oh, you're using chat GPT the wrong way, you know, here are 10 ways how you can use it for your business. And then, you know, they have like all of these, these prompts that can help people. And I, I mean, I've personally experimented with it and it's, it's, it's huge. Now where I'm a little bit concerned is, you know, bias in in ai right um that is still something i think that we need to tackle as a society because let's be real a lot of these tools that we're now you know leveraging 
were built by by men, right? And there've already been a couple of of instances where where women pointed out online that some of the tools that they've leveraged um, had that inherent bias. But I totally agree. You know, if those tools can help women invest their time and energy in a more efficient and productive way, so they can focus, you know, their their remaining time and energy on raising, on networking and investing it in high priority tasks that can help them access capital and scale their businesses. I'm I'm all for it. So that's wonderful to hear. And and we heard it in in the intro earlier. You're really interested in that intersection of uh, machine learning, AI, smart design, uh, specifically within the health tech tech space. So um, not surprised by your answer there at all. And couldn't agree more about what you were saying about more and more women building side hustles, companies, you know, in addition to their nine to five or starting out as freelancers, discovering their true passions and then eventually turning that into a company. I think the pandemic really accelerated that because people took a step back and reflected on, okay, what is it that I really want in life, right? And how can I invest my time and energy in a way that is more aligned with my personal values? And how can I you know, stop working on, on making someone else rich when I could really be building something from scratch and make myself rich. Um, so definitely very hopeful about the future um, of entrepreneurship, specifically from a feminist perspective. Um, but we also know, Elizabeth, that networking is absolutely critical in, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, right? And there's the saying that your network is your net worth. And I 1000% believe in that because I can speak from personal experience that investing time and energy into building very meaningful, sustainable relationships can truly accelerate your career. In fact, I wouldn't be sitting here today if that, that you know, if I hadn't invested that time and energy. Um, I personally always like to lead with authenticity and vulnerability, which are two of my core values when I try to form new relationships because uh, from personal experience, when I lead with that and I hold and create space for other people that enables them to also show up with vulnerability and as their most authentic self, they become more emotionally invested in my success and vice versa. And then people are more likely to go out of their way to make those key introductions, to sponsor you in meetings, you know, that you're not a part of and 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 so on. Um, so in the entrepreneurial world, those people and relationships are arguably the most valuable currency in addition to actual capital, right? Curious to hear, Elizabeth, what is your approach to networking? And do you have any tips for our audience members, not only for building, but also for maintaining meaningful relationships? This is a great question. And I think my answer has probably evolved a lot over the years. And as I've become more comfortable with my authentic and vulnerable self. Um, so I think, right, we can read all these articles or podcasts on networking, and it's like, do these 10 things all the time. And it's incredibly overwhelming. And I think my best advice there is you have to figure out how do you network authentically with your personality. Mm. So when I first started SoGal Ventures, I was speaking at conferences all the time, going around the world to these big events, 
Um, and in New York City, you could also go to, you know, a women founder funder event, multiple ones every single night. And, you know, I was going out every night trying to meet people. And I became incredibly just like exhausted mm -hmm. to the point where then during the day, like I wouldn't have that much energy to do all the work I needed. Mm -hmm. And so I had to create, you know, so, sort of rules and boundaries around how do I network, how do I engage with the community, and how do I do it in an authentic way where I can make these relationships and make them meaningful, but also have energy, right, to do all the other stuff I have to do in my business. So I created rules, like I would only go to up to two events in the evenings mm -hmm. um, while I was living in New York um, a week. I would only speak at one event a week. Um, and I would pick which one was most meaningful to me and sort of make a commitment to do it and follow through on that one. But I would have to say no to other things, knowing that kind of, you know, trying to take too much on mm -hmm. was actually going to kind of like empty my bucket rather than fill it. Mm -hmm. And I think through that, I started to realize, wow, you're actually not an extrovert. You're an introvert. Mm -hmm. um, and so how can you build more sort of networking opportunities that sort of take your introverted self and put that in the best light versus trying to do all these very extroverted things, right, that really drain your energy. And although you're going through the motions of doing them, you're probably not even taking full advantage of these opportunities because it's just not necessarily completely aligned to who you are as a person. And so I think I started to figure out, like, what are my things? And I love recording podcasts, for example, because it is, right, a one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation with another individual where you get to know them. And it's something that I think I'm good at and I think my introverted self really enjoys. So prioritizing those types of opportunities versus, say, public speaking opportunities where I have to, you know, go up and speak in front of an audience of 500 people. Mm. Um, I'd much rather do a podcast than do a speaking opportunity like that. And that's okay. My business partner, Pocket, she loves speaking in public. Mm. It gives her energy. So she prioritizes, right, doing that. And so I think giving yourself, like, grace and permission to choose the things in networking that actually work for you and I prefer sort of like one-on-one -on -one or three-on-one types of interactions. So instead of kind of forcing myself to like try and host big parties with our portfolio entrepreneurs and get, you know, 50 of us together all at once, I think about like, hey, if I go on a trip somewhere, how can I spend one day with this entrepreneur, one day with that entrepreneur, one day with this other entrepreneur? And how could I have like three really good days where I'm building those relationships with these three entrepreneurs and I don't need to be doing 50? Mm -hmm in one day um, because the one-on-one -on -one relationships I'm going to have with each entrepreneur through this day is going to be much deeper than, right, if I just host an event where there's 50 of us all there and that's okay and that's meaningful to me and that's worth it mm. to me. So really trying to figure out like what is worth it to you. Do you want a lot of more shallow relationships? Do you want a lot of deeper relationships, but maybe not as many relationships as you're networking? Um, and how does that suit your personality? Um, <laughs> because I think as women, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like, for example, in the venture capital community, like 
most men are just out there doing the work. They're like investing in companies, working with their portfolio companies. Like, of course, there's the venture capital men that are kind of known for being active on Twitter, active at public speaking events. But some of the greatest investors, like you probably have never heard of them because they're not out there speaking at conferences. They're not out getting drinks every single night and leaving their family at home. They're usually based in like random geographies and they're just doing the work. And I think as women, we put all this extra pressure on ourselves that like, in addition to doing the work, we need to be doing these other hundred things. And it's not that those other hundred things won't propel your business. Many of them will. But it's can you choose two, three or four of those things instead of expecting yourself to do all 100 and just pick the two, three or four you really enjoy and not force yourself to do ones where you don't authentically have joy from doing those as a way of building your network. Because I think if you aren't doing it from an authentic place that brings joy, it probably isn't going to be as effective in your networking building effort, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it absolutely does. And as I was listening to, I was like, yep, she's speaking directly to my soul right now because I feel like what you were outlining in the beginning you know you went to a gazillion events you know every night because let's be real in new york city where i i'm i'm based there there's just always something to do and you can have a lot of fomo like oh i wasn't able to go to this one or that one like i'm gonna give you give you an example like this past friday um maggie palmer who I just recently met. She's the founder of Pep Talk. Her, she's absolutely incredible. We met one-on-one -on -one this past week, and then she invited me to an event the next day, Friday evening, like 5 to 7 p.m., where a uh, pretty cool event, the beautiful venue, where the former uh, foreign minister of Australia was the honorary guest. And lots of amazing people there. Um, and I was super excited about going, but then the closer I approach, you know, the afternoon, I was like, my energy is kind of depleted. I wouldn't be able to show up, you know, with energy and dedicate myself to having these conversations. It was also the first day of, of my period. So, you know, everything ed ended adding up and I made the decision to listen to my body and energy levels instead and just spend the evening uh, on the couch. Was there a little bit of FOMO? Yes. Will there be other opportunities to network with the same type of people? Yes, as well. Um, so I do think it's it's important to be mindful about where you invest your energy. And to your point, I also feel like I'm I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I do enjoy public speaking, similar to Pocket. It gives me a lot of energy. But yeah, going out there and 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 networking with a bunch of people that I don't know anything about also takes away some of my energy and then just fall into the bed and could just sleep for 12 hours straight. So um, I, I love that you highlighted how important it is to manage your energy um, accordingly. Um, and when you have the opportunity to travel and have moments where you can have these very very meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversations um that's 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 wonderful and you are a fabulous podcast guest so uh, i love that you well, have made you. the decision of course that you made the decision to to invest your time accordingly accordingly um so love that um elizabeth i read an interview of yours um where you said and and i quote let me read that out 
when I meet someone, I can often tell very quickly if that person is going to be successful and has the right team and skill set to build a company that is beyond just a technology product. What qualities and skill sets are you looking for in founders that you're considering working with? And how can young women start honing those skills today, maybe even years before they start their own companies and are trying to raise funding? Yes, great question. Um, Definitely that statement of mine was a little brazen. (laughs) I love it. I would say there's a lot of things that are, you know, good signals uh, when I'm meeting a person. So I think the first is just being self-aware and then also, right, putting in the time or effort to be aware of who you're meeting with. So, for example, for this podcast, you're incredibly prepared. You've read all this stuff about me. You've prepared all these questions in advance. You put me on your vision board, right? Like you had a very clear strategy and you executed on that. And I think every interaction we go about as entrepreneurs is an opportunity Mm. for that. So I remember when I was starting my first fund in grad school and I was reaching out to all these alumni that I had found um, on this pitch book tool. Like, I wasn't just sending a cold email, right, that was just like, here's what I'm doing, meet with me. I was sending a very personalized cold email after, you know, at least 10 to 30 minutes of research on this person so that hopefully they'd respond to me. And then when I was meeting with them, I was doing all this research in the background so that we could guide our 30-minute conversation to the best possible outcome so that, you know, I was utilizing their time effectively as well as hopefully progressing towards my goals. And I think as entrepreneurs, if you are pitching an investor, that's really, really important because investors come in all different varieties, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's an angel investor or VC, there's different industries they're interested in, there's different stages that they invest in, there's different check sizes that different firms can write, Um, There's different geographies that different firms can support. And so if you're just, you know, blasting something out to everyone and sort of taking the same approach, sending your deck and like being like, okay, let's meet, showing up to the meeting and pitching your company, that's a total missed opportunity because you're not figuring out like how do you actually connect with this person who is on the investor and and why are they taking the meeting with you? Like there's probably something that they saw in your deck that interests them. What is that? And how can you all talk about that during your meeting? So I think the first thing is like being self-aware about who you are and what your business is, and then also being aware of who's the person on the other line of this conversation, whether it's an investor, a potential partner, a potential customer, like doing your research. And that's very evident in the first minute that you talk to right? someone if they have done their research or not. And it comes off almost a little bit kind of like, aloof or cocky or like almost that they don't value your time if they haven't done that and I think all investors have different preferences for the types of entrepreneurs they enjoy working with Um, I enjoy working with the more self-aware in tune data research type of entrepreneurs. And I just know that, right? So that's the type of people I look for. 
That doesn't mean that's the type of people every investor looks for. Um, but that's number one. Mm. Number two is kind of like understanding their personal background mm. um, in two different ways. Number one is why are they building this company mm. and why is it important to them? There's all different types of companies that can make tons of money for the entrepreneur and the investor. But why is this particular person starting this particular company to solve this particular problem for this particular group of people? And so I think being able to convey that in a very authentic way mm. to you in a meaningful way, that's like the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur um, to try and promote your company. And there needs to be, right? Whether it's like, you know, what we call the founder's story, but there needs to be a connection there, a real vulnerable, authentic connection of like, why do you have this chip on your shoulder? How did you figure out this problem? Why are you the one to solve it? And it has to be deep and meaningful because as an entrepreneur, life is incredibly rocky of a ton of ups and downs. And like the only way you get through that in my experience of working with all these entrepreneurs is if you have a very deep heart tie to what you're building. Mm -hmm. The second sort of is like a track record of success in their life. Mm -hmm. And I think that can look different for anyone given their life circumstance, their background, how they grew up. And it can show up in a variety of different ways, depending the level of kind of privilege you had in your upbringing. Um, it can go from, you know, you were a world champion horseback rider to like, I led a volunteer initiative at my local church to help, you know, immigrants find lawyers to, you know, help with their immigration status. There's all areas of the spectrum where you could have what I would call previous success at different points in your life. And I want to understand, like, what were those? Why did you do those things? What excited you about those different areas of success you had in your life? What did you learn from those? And there usually is a track record. And it can be, right, just as I was saying, of anything under the sun, but it has to be that you excelled at multiple things in your life. And that could be you were a great student. It could be, you know, you were a 12-year veteran of serving at a local animal shelter and you helped them expand their operation. can really be anything, but it shows that you had passion, you took something, you grew something, and you were kind of tenacious and a little bit of a hustler, and you figured out, like, how do you provide resources and excel at something where resources may not even have existed before? So I think that's, like, a really big indicator, at least to me, of, like, oh, this is an interesting person, entrepreneur, that I'm interested in learning more about. Mm. And then I think kind of... The third biggest thing in that kind of goes to that hustling tenacity, um, utilizing all the things out there is like, how do you think about resources? Like, there's some entrepreneurs that think they're entitled to, you know, raising millions of dollars and that, you know, they're just going to spend this millions of dollars on doing X, Y, and Z to grow their business. 
And like, that's a little bit of a fantasy, especially for women. It's not that easy to raise millions of dollars. Nobody's just going to hand it to you in most cases, unless you, you know, come from a very wealthy family or have very wealthy friends or something like that. And so there is going to be an enormous amount of work before you have access to that capital. And so you're going to be bootstrapping. And like Pocket and I bootstrapped for many, many years Mm -hmm. as we were getting off the ground. And so it's how do you figure out to do a lot with very little? And there's enormous amounts of creative ways of doing that. And I like to understand like, where did the individual have this creativity to be able to create with very little? Because I think that shows a lot of like, okay, once you actually do have the resources, how does that scale? And like, what's your personality going to be in sort of managing those resources? Because at the end of the day, as a venture capitalist, I'm a fiduciary for my investors. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to pick entrepreneurs that are going to be a fiduciary for that capital as well and utilize that capital correctly with good governance, utilize it in ways that maximizes potential return. So that's a really big thing I look for is kind of like, what is somebody's personality around money? What is their personality when they have very little? And how is that going to evolve once they do have resources? Um, And even when you do have resources, like if you raise, right, a one or three million dollar seed round, that's a huge accomplishment. But that also you can't just throw it in a hundred places because then it's poof gone. (laughs) So how is somebody going to use that one to three million dollars to get to right the next stage and use it responsibly in a way that maximizes their own business value? And so I'm really looking to understand that and a person's personality and like it's not just a graph you put at the end of your slide deck like okay I want 20% to go to marketing I want 30% to go to product development like what does that mean are you developing the product is somebody else developing the product do you already have a firm you're hiring with a quote that is going to develop the product um what does marketing mean like right there's a thousand different ways you could spend money on marketing What does that actually mean? And the more clear you're able to be as an entrepreneur, the higher likelihood that you'll get funded. Mm -hmm. So you're really interested in getting a very holistic package. You're basically getting to know people, potential, you know, partners in a very, very deep level. And I think it goes back to what you are saying earlier and how you prefer to invest your time and energy, which is based more in a more intimate one-on-one, two-on-one-three, on, on one setting. And I'm, I'm sure that way you've been able to form rare, very meaningful relationships with some of the founders that you are invested in. And it becomes this beautiful symbiosis where, you know, when you allow them to share about, okay, what, what's, what's your story? What's, what's your why? Um, we heard the, in the intro, you were really committed to you know, the health tech space and Prosha specifically because of your dad, right? Being diagnosed with cancer, right? And there's so many, yeah. 
stories out there of successful founders who were trying to solve for a pain point that was very, very personal for them as well. There is like tons of moms out there who realize, oh, you know, there is not enough resources or products out there that cater to working moms, for example, right? So I think that's 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 really, really important to keep in mind. It's not only about, okay, what is the TAM, like the total addressable market? What is your CAC, your customer acquisition cost, right? Like, yes, those numbers are still important and you probably still want to see them. But at the end of the day, this is a people business. So having a very high level of self-awareness and having the right mindset, but also being someone that has a lot of potential, whatever that might look like uniquely for, for that individual. I think that like trifecta is, is, is really interesting. So thank you for sharing that. And I took tons of notes. So, you know, if I should ever approach you in the future, if I have my own business idea, I, I know how to, how to um, position my own story. Yeah. And I think Rick, like VCs aren't looking right. for you to be perfect at that early. I think all those things you mentioned, whether it's a financial model or like a model of what your acquisition costs are or a model of the market, those are right, like intellectual exercises that are helpful right. for you to go through as a business owner and entrepreneur. And they help, you know, convey information to a potential investor. But at the end of the day, you know, an early stage VC is investing yeah. in you as a person and, you know, your idea, your business, your concept. They know there's going to be thousands of things that happen between now and let's say a potential IPO and problems that are going to be need to be solved sort of constantly. So I think at least for me as an investor, it's really trying to understand, mm. right, your problem solving ability and to understand the full pictures of like, where do you see your gaps right now? How do you deal with some of those? Like, how do you deal with uncertainty? How do you, you know, deal with roadblocks? And I think sometimes as women, we can be a little bit hesitant um, to share some of those. And I don't think it's mutually exclusive, right? You can have this really bold vision with this really big plan for the future. And you can still be vulnerable about what your challenges are today. No, it's a process, right? Like, unless you're a serial founder, you know, most founders go into a founding experience, oftentimes not really knowing what they're doing. So then what they have to hold on to is, is the experiences to date, their why, and showing up every single day. And there will be bumps, many bumps along the way, right? Right. But it's about, okay, how, when you, when you fall down, how do you pick yourself back up? How good are you at building your network and asking for help and helping close those gaps that still exist exactly. especially at the beginning of of your journey so i love that you pointed that out elizabeth let's pivot because most of our listeners are women in their 20s and early 30s who are still in the corporate world for the most part not all of them but but a good chunk of them are so they're still working on building their financial literacy in general, starting to build generational wealth through investing in the stock market. 
And my mission with Giver Dollars is to not only help them with that personal finance piece and educating them, but also to get them to think a step further about how they can eventually leverage their own financial resources in order to pay it forward to other women. We know that angel investing, syndicates, or joining a fund like Sogal as a limited partner are all great opportunities to build wealth for yourself by investing in other women and minority founders. And I personally wholeheartedly believe that our world would be a lot more equitable if we did equip a broader set of women with the knowledge, the tools, and the access to join this ecosystem. And I know that you teamed up with Fempire to build an accessible, inclusive, and very holistic angel investor training. Um, So that's already a fantastic resource to have. And I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes so our audience members can, can check that out. But what else can young women do now that would set them up for success five, 10 years down the line? Like if you were, let's say, 25 years old again, how would you reverse engineer kind of like an action plan and establish like critical milestones along the way that would then eventually allow you to build a strong yeah, portfolio? Yeah, so I actually started so gal. Female when I was 25 and my business partner pocket was 23. And I think the first and most important piece of advice is, you know, invest in yourself. And at the end of the day, like, as silly as this sounds, like, you can only rely on yourself, right? Like, as you see from these tech layoffs and everything else, like, at the end of the day, you are your product service money maker. Um, So it's not, even though your family or your loved ones or your friends may be hesitant if you're trying to make a bet on investing in yourself, if you think you can do it, take that jump and do whatever is on your mind to invest in yourself. Because I think that's where sometimes Mm -hmm. the biggest returns come from, from a financial perspective. When you actually take that risk and you say, I believe in myself and I believe in you know, my abilities to build X, Y, and Z. And although it may be difficult the first few years and it might be a crazy journey, I believe in myself. Um, That's number one, because I think it's really hard to get very wealthy just by working, you know, a nine to five and investing in traditional things. Like you can get upper middle class and you can have really nice things and provide for your family. But if you're really looking to build like generational wealth, there has to be a belief and investment in yourself. And that can look like right a variety of things, um, whether it's you know mm-hmm. taking a hold of your own financial investments and you know looking at things that might be riskier but higher return. It could mean you know setting up very early a plan to invest in you know real estate or something else that's you know cash flow producing over time on the side of what you're doing, perhaps in your corporate job. Um, it's really looking at like, what are the things you can do with money beyond just spending it that can provide you a financial future? And I think, right, there's very traditional things like I'm going to invest in my 401k and get my company to match that. That's great. But there's all these other things you can be doing um, to sort of over time think about your wealth. And I think it's important to think of it 
in kind of stages, like the like right this minute, in the next couple of years, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line. And the more clear you can be, I'm a huge believer in kind of like a manifestation. Uh, the more clear you can be on that, the more likely yes. you are to get there. So I know, for example, um, Pocket and myself, when we first started out, like we were angel investing into companies because we weren't sure if they'd like take our money, if we were going to be good investors, if people would like us. We were angel investing like $1,000 to $3,000 checks. And we were both tutoring and like providing, um, she was providing kind of career consulting. And we were doing this on the side for like $300 an hour so that we could write these angel checks. And we kind of said, you know, any money that we're gathering from, you know, this tutoring or career consulting, we're going to put those towards angel checks and we're going to start building our track record as angel investors. So eventually we can start SoGal, our fund, and have a track record for that. So I think sometimes it's useful to think about like, is there money, like, I don't know, say you have a lot of clothes. Can you, you know, sell those clothes and then take that money to do something on the investment side that may seem risky or a little bit sort of out of your comfort zone um, so that you almost think of it as like, this is learning money, right? Because there may be money that you fail with in the investment mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. as you start learning about what you want to do asset-wise as you're building your wealth. But can you make it so that intellectually you're seeing this as learning money? And so I think a lot of, you know, everyone is like willing to jump into things like an MBA or grad school. And they're like, this is the path we need to be on. And so like I chose a grad school specifically that I got a big scholarship at because I said, you know, going hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt mm. to go to business school, that seems like kind of this really tough proposition because then I'm going to have to take a certain type of job that pays a certain type of money. And that may not give me the flexibility to invest in myself as an individual and take risks as potentially an entrepreneur or something like that. So instead of going to what at the time was known as, you know, a top business school with no scholarship, I picked kind of this newer business school that didn't have much of a track record, but was willing to give me a scholarship and aligned with a lot of the things I was interested in, knowing that that decision financially would give me the ability to take risks on other things I was doing. And so I think if you think of something like an MBA, you could easily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. So are there ways to get that same experience or an even better experience through doing other things, whether that's, you know, buying a small income producing property on the real estate side that you're going to manage and try and figure out how to be an Airbnb super host or a landlord um, and, you know, have a cash producing asset like you may have to only put couple tens of thousands of dollars down for that to get you started. And that's a way smaller commitment than business school, right? But for some reason in society, we see something like business school and we're like, that's a sure bet. Let me throw all my money into that. When there's actually all these other ways you could throw your money that are even, you know, more interesting, more sure bets and could also be the start to something different 
that you're doing, whether it's angel investing or real estate investing or investing in your own business. So I think it's always really important to really look at like the cost of the opportunity and what you feel like you're going to get out of it and gut check. Am I doing this just because this is what everyone else is doing and what I think I need to be doing? Or am I doing this because it's something I really want to do that I think is going to right, pro- progress my long-term goals towards manifestation? Um, and so I always say with angel investing as part of our Fempire course, like whatever you think you're going to angel invest, you're interested in that. Like for your first 10 investments, take a zero off of that. So if you thought you had a budget of like $50,000, you're not throwing that at one or two investments, maybe invest $5,000 over 10 investments. And that 10 investments is going to be your MBA and angel investing. Mm -hmm. Over a period of two years, you are going to learn so much Mm -hmm. from that experience that even if all those investments go to zero, which they probably won't, um, but even if they do, you'll have learned way more than the $50,000 that you put towards that. So I think when you're thinking about any sort of, you know, wealth creating opportunity, like going back to like the small Airbnb income property, like even if you fail at that, you're going to have learned so much through that experience that you're going to take it with you later on in your career and your wealth building journey. So really thinking about things, especially early, right, when you're in your 20s as like, what can I learn from this? investment opportunity. So like Pocket and I, we did small angel investments. Um, Some of them worked. Some of them didn't work out. We learned a lot along the way. Um, Luckily, because my mom knew I loved shopping growing up, um, she put my bat mitzvah money from when I was 13 in a bank account and didn't let me touch it. So I was able to use like $10,000 from that to invest in my first fund out of Johns Hopkins. Um, And, you know, I was able to be an LP in my first fund for the $10,000. And that was really scary because that was like all the money I had, you know, like tucked away at that point in my life as a 25-year-old. And that seemed really risky, Mm -hmm. but it also was, I was betting on myself. I was betting that I could go raise money from other, you know, alumni to start the student fund. I was betting that I could find good entrepreneurs and be able to invest in that. But it was also very long term, right? I knew investing in a venture fund, it takes 10 to 15 years before you get your money back out. So I knew I was not going to see that $10,000 for a very long time, if ever again, hopefully again, but you know, it may also go away. But I also knew through doing that, I was going to learn so much, right? And that was the start of how I met Pocket, how I started SoGal, kind of the start Mm. of everything. So I think we have to be a little bit less afraid. And instead of necessarily just giving all of our money to these educational institutions or other things, thinking about like if we use that same amount of money to create our own educational opportunities of building wealth, like could we get further along? And I think oftentimes the answer is yes even though it's the path that not the majority of people take. Hmm. I love how you 
framed that so beautifully because to your point earlier, we're so quick to throw like 200, 300 grand at the Harvards, the Stanfords of the world, right? But we wouldn't even take a fraction of that, let's say like 50K or let it be 10K and invest that in ourselves because I feel like as a society, we're to a certain extent so so brainwashed that we we don't do these things. But I But I love how you broke it down in terms of like, okay, maybe you have 50K, scrap that one zero, take 5K, invest that in like 10, five or 10 different startups um, and see that as an investment in just learning, nothing else. You don't even think about returns just yet because, I mean, we all know if you see any return of it at all, you know, it's going to be five, 10, 15 years down the road, right? But just learn how the ecosystem works, learn about what entrepreneurs care about, what they need, how you can potentially help them, you know, maybe questions you, you should have asked before you made an investment that you can then ask when you invest again, like a year later or so. I actually uh, adopted a pretty similar approach. I made my very so first amazing. angel investment earlier this year, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, it was enough. Thank you. Yeah, it was similar to what you were just saying. I was like, okay, I'm probably never going to see that money ever again, especially it was just like in one one, one, one startup. Um, so I'm working on building more my portfolio there. And it's, it's a Which fertility company? preservation startup because um, that's something I'm very passionate about, women's health in general. Um, it's called Blooming Eve. They're very, very early stage. Their whole, whole spiel is they want to make egg freezing and also eventually IVF more accessible. So they provide a lot of educational resources. Um, they've researched like 450 fertility providers in the United States. So they have this database that people can check out. They're building a community as well. They're currently part of the Techstars Catalyst program, which is super exciting. I've learned tons just over the past couple of weeks and months, you know, because we have like monthly check-ins and I see, okay, are there any people I can introduce them to? Like, can I give them feedback on their website, on their social presence and whatnot? We'll see where, where that journey takes me, but I'm very, very excited about it. So, yeah, it's, it's hopefully going to be the first of many, many, many companies I get to invest in 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 the future, that's definitely my goal to be more present in the angel slash VC ecosystem at some point. And I think that's an excellent example. I kind of say like building your life like a portfolio approach, right? You can have a portfolio of different types of investments. You can have a portfolio of different types of experiences. You can have a portfolio, right, of different types of networks that you're in. And right. like, right, as women, we don't have to be singular. We can be these amazing like multi slash like podcaster slash angel investor slash entrepreneur slash all these yes. other things. And I think that's so exciting. And each of these provides a learning opportunity for us to better ourselves and better our future and help other women. And yeah, that's my biggest piece of advice is just like, how do you start building this portfolio of your life? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Um, Cause that's definitely a development I've, with this as well, you know, people, first of all, they don't want to be put in boxes anymore and, and they shouldn't be, right? When people ask me, you know, when I speak at, you know, events or whatever that requires a bio and they're like, okay, what's your title? 
Well, I have about 12 different titles. So you pick one, you know, it's like because I, 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 I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur at heart, right? So I don't do just one thing. Um, but I think there now we're in a place again because of technology and because we're more connected than ever where it's okay to wear many different hats as long as every single one of these hats is deeply aligned with you know your purpose in life and with your values and get you to you know a place you want yeah, to be and a lot you know, of people are going to understand it and a lot of people are going to be intimidated by it but i think we have to just keep going and be like, that's okay. We're doing our own thing. We're, you know, making and paving the way of our own features. And just because it didn't look like the traditional, you know, narrative that's persisted for so long, like the truth is, is right. Like women weren't like the traditional narrative wasn't really built for women in the first place. Mm -hmm. So of course we're building it yep. a different way. Yeah. I love that. One final question for you, because I don't only like to always start out with the same question, but I also like to close with the same question for each of my guests. What's a financial milestone yeah, you've so achieved the that you're most proud of? Years and years ago, Pocket and I kind of said, like, one day we will have, you know, at least 12 properties all over the world between the two of us. And, you know, wherever we want to go, there'll be someplace that we can stay and we'll be like making money off of these places. And so right now I'm kind of in the middle of my first true like gut renovation, flipping rehab project of a house. And I have been learning so, so, so much um, of everything about design, construction, contracting, sort of materials, trying to keep costs, you know, to a certain budget as you're doing this and it's just been so kind of exciting because it's a whole new world for me and I you know I'm definitely not perfect I've made mistakes along the way that I'm learning from that I can apply to future properties um but it's been so much fun just kind of like taking on this new challenge mm -hmm. and she also has taken on this challenge as well herself and to like learn from each other and our, many of our entrepreneurs have also done similar things, so to learn from them. And right, it's something completely separate from all of our businesses, um, but it has a lot of the same skill sets that you have, right, as an entrepreneur, project management, cost management, something of like getting financing, whether it's a mortgage or a loan to be able to right, make these renovations. Um, and so there's a lot of applicable things to it, but there's a lot of completely new things as well to it and it's funny because just because of how housing markets have appreciated in the past year and a half that i've had this property like it's appreciated more than even the cash that i've like brought in from my main business and so that's something you know that is unique to real estate wow. um and i think right like it feels like oh that was a lot less work than you know, all the work that i put in every day to my main business and like, oh, this is financial leverage, right? At its finest, because I was lucky to get, you know, a really good mortgage at a very good price before all those went up. And you're like, oh, now I really understand how people utilize financial leverage to build, you know, generational wealth. So that's something I'm proud of. And it's, you know, work in progress, learning opportunity. Um, but it's been a really fun one. 
Well, congratulations. That's exciting. Real estate is something that I will tackle at some point, not in the near future, probably, but but at some point as well, because it fascinates me to, I'm sure, very, very steep learning curve there. Well, look, Elizabeth, this was a blast. Literally, I can't believe this is how I get to start this new week, like probably going to be the highlight of my month um, in addition to my to my vacation trip that I have coming up soon. Um Thank you so much for everything that you do to help women change their own narratives. Um, Greatly appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time. Hey there, not so fast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you've listened in from today. Reviews are a podcaster's most important currency. It helps me create visibility for the incredible women who join me on this show. And if you've made it this far, I'd like to believe that supporting women is one of your favorite pastimes. If you already left a review, first of all, thank you. But why not share this episode with a friend or post it to your Instagram story? Thank you for helping me on my mission to make women rich by making women rich.